Well, we're starting a new series of sermons this morning that I've chose to title, The Call from Above, Living the Sermon. It should be obvious that our focus for at least the next couple of months will be upon what many have come to know as the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. There's also parallel material found in Luke's chapter 6 verses 17 to 49 that has often been referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, And we'll consider that from time to time in terms of comparing the differences that occur between the two. But as I begin, I believe that there are some points that we need to make clear, things that we need to understand by way of introduction. And the first being that I think it's important that you and I realize that this passage was not even called the Sermon on the Mount until 393 A.D. Uh, The first use of that title came in a book by the church father and theologian uh, Augustine or Augustine, Augustine of Hippo, uh, who wrote a book titled Our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And the book is actually a commentary on Jesus' teaching, which Augustine considered to be a perfect standard for the Christian life. It originally appeared in two volumes, and in the first volume, only chapter 5 is addressed, and the pressing question was, is it humanely possible to put the Beatitudes into practice? That's a very important question, because some believe that it's not. For instance, Martin Luther said that the sermon does not belong in City Hall because one cannot govern with it. How do you run a military with turn the other cheek as a motto? Uh, The approach of many is summed up in the words of a book that I read in preparation for this series of sermons when the writer said that the history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything that is shocking, demanding, and uncompromising and render it harmless. I've read good, conservative, Christian theologians who said that we can't live by the sermon. It was written with, when Jesus was actually thinking the kingdom was going to come quickly, uh, the return, and therefore uh, we just need to try to do the best we can. To, to not, it's not possible to live up to it. So let's just explain it away somehow. So for the first 360 years or so, following the life of Christ, these teachings that we're going to be looking at were not even considered a sermon. Now I hope that raises a bit of a question and makes you wonder why. I mean, listen to how chapter 5 begins. I've chosen as my text today to actually, I'm going to start with chapter 4. And uh, then jump to the very end. Because today I just want to really get us to get a feel for the context of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to start with chapter 4, verse 23. 
And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying. Now I'm going to skip to chapter 7. Verse 26. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This has been the reading of God's word. So, it clearly says he was teaching them. And that leads me to my second point. Pincus Lapide speaks of these chapters in terms of the teaching of the preacher on the mount. In opposition to a lot of liberal teaching, he stresses that everything points to this passage being authentically consistent with the speaking style of Jesus, his use of hyperbole. I mean, can you imagine being in a crowd and Jesus says, let those of you that have a great big beam in your eye worry about that before you worry about a piece of sawdust in someone else's eye. I mean, I can just see some of them went, oh, Jesus, he's a funny man. You know, a big beam, a log, that's what the word means. He used hyperbole. He used paradox. He used some very compelling imagery. And he used wordplay even. And Lapide has stressed, Jesus has crafted a sermon for us in which the power of faith that it radiates and the world-affirming spirit that blows into our face points to Jesus as one of the great illuminaries of human history. And guess what? Pincus Lapide is an Orthodox Jew. The question has often been raised. Can we live by the teaching found in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount? My mentor and teacher, uh, Dr. Glenn Stassen, you might recognize that name. Uh, he was the son of Harold Stassen, who was the perennial candidate for president many years ago. Now, some of you won't even remember when he was running, but... Uh, but his dad was uh, high up in politics. Uh, Glenn initially studied to be a, uh, a nuclear physicist and then decided instead to, to study for the ministry. And uh, he has a book on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but 
Glenn believes that we can and should live by the Sermon on the Mount. In fact, in his words, he said, I believe the sermon is God's will for all people that God created. So as we begin to do some digging in, uh, I want you to to remember how uh, chapter 5 began. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is a statement of motivation, It's a statement of authority. And there is included in it an identification of style. Jesus is driven by a compassion for the crowds. And in terms of authority, sitting down to teach was in fact the authority that the legal experts took. They stood to proclaim. They sat down to teach. And that indicates also the style uh, that, that he's going to be using. Uh, which is why at the end of, of, or beginning of chapter 8 and the end of chapter 7, we see how they were astonished at his authority. Because he sat down. He postured himself as one who was a rabbi, uh, an expert, one who was ready to teach. Uh, but there's something else there. When a Jew hears a reference to the mountain, using the definite article, can you uh, suggest what you might think they would be thinking about? The mountain? Mount Sinai. That would immediately come to their minds. You see, uh, It's not by chance that Jesus is compared to Moses 18 times in the Gospels. And in fact, Matthew structures his own Gospel around five distinct teachings. There's teachings with miracles, teachings with miracles, miracles with teaching, teachings with miracles. Five distinct sections. Each of them has a verbal clue as to the ending of one of those sections and the beginning of the next in the words. Now, think about that in terms of Moses. What is credited to Moses? The five books of what are referred to as the Torah, the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And by the way, A young person aspiring to be a teacher in Israel. How many of you have a hard time memorizing things? If you wanted to be a rabbi and you wanted to be able to serve under the best of rabbis, you had to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and portions of the Proverbs and the Prophets. And from what we see in Scripture, I don't think it was a part of His divine nature. I think it was a part of His devotion and human nature that Jesus quotes from all of those sections of Scripture Himself. So, 
Let me begin by noting that the context for these three chapters is established with that phrase. He is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He is teaching and in the synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. By the way, those words are repeated again almost verbatim in chapter 9 verse 35 when we have another change from the Galilean ministry and he's headed to Jerusalem. So two distinct points in his ministry. The end of the introductory part concluding with a sermon and then the Galilean ministry in between, Matthew's divided into three sections with this identification of what Jesus was doing. Teaching, preaching, and healing. And, and I think it behooves us that we as a church should re-examine what we do in the light of those three things. What are we doing in terms of our teaching? our proclamation not only in the building but out of the building and what are we doing about helping to bring about the healing uh, of those who are a part of our group uh, now I want to recommend a book I was going to bring it out here I thought I did but I didn't the book is titled Why the Gospel Living the Good News of King Jesus with Purpose it was written by my friend Matthew Bates. One of the things that he points out is our understanding is often dictated by the questions we ask. So instead of asking what is the gospel, maybe we would be a step further if we would ask the question why the good news? Why the gospel? And Matthew points to uh, 2 Corinthians 2.12 where Paul identifies as his purpose for going to Troas as to proclaim the good news of Christ. The good news of Christ. Notice that Paul stresses that it is the good news not of salvation, the good news not of having our sins forgiven, but the good news of the Christ, not even of Jesus. Sometimes we fail to remember that Jesus Christ is not a name. It's a claim. Jesus was his earthly name given by his parents, Mary and Joseph. According to Luke, uh, an angel, Gabriel, came to Mary, Luke 1.31 and 2.21, and said, name your baby Jesus. You know what Jesus means? He saves. Okay. But, Jesus Christ is a composite name. Christ isn't a last name. If they wanted to give him, give him a name that identified the family, it would be Bar-Jesus, son of, or Bar-Joseph, son of Joseph. Jesus Bar-Joseph. That would mean Jesus the son of Joseph. But no, Jesus Christ means Jesus the anointed one. Jesus the Messiah. And the good news that Paul talks about and Jesus himself talks about is the good news of the Christ, the anointed one, the kingdom. 
from a biblical standpoint. Why did God give us the gospel, the good news? I mean, yeah, we need salvation. I need my sins forgiven on a daily basis, even if you don't. I, you know, I got really angry this morning. Jesse was rushing to get out. It was just me. And I had to get the dogs fed, and I did. And before I could get the dogs out after having them fed, one of the dogs decided to make a deposit. <laughs> and I got angry. Probably angry to the level of sin. We all sin. Every day. In fact, John says, if you say you don't sin, you're a liar and you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. We are all sinners saved by grace. We need salvation. We need our sins forgiven. But biblically speaking, God gave the gospel first of all because we need a king. We need someone who can lead us that we can be loyal to and obedient to. And let me flesh it out a bit. When the Bible describes the proclamation of the good news, again and again, the summarizing message is simply that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one. For instance, the book of Acts. Acts 5.42 And every day in the temple and at home they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. Not Jesus as the Savior. Not Jesus as the forgiver of our sins. Jesus as the anointed one. Acts 8, 4-5 Now those who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, Samaria and proclaimed the Messiah, the anointed one, the King to them. Acts 9.22 Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was in fact the anointed one, the appointed king. Acts 17, 2-3 The same thing again. Paul went as was his custom and on three Sabbath days for three weeks he argued with them from the scriptures which would have been the Old Testament explaining and proving that it was necessary for the anointed one to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying this is the anointed one. This is the Messiah, Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you. Acts 18.5 Silas and Timothy arriving from Macedonia and it says Paul was occupied proclaiming the word testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. My, my friend Matthew Bates sums it up by saying by calling him Jesus Christ our New Testament authors were claiming that God honored him with the ultimate kingship. God exalted Jesus to his right hand where he reigns as the Messiah. I've said this to you before. I'll say it again. I am very pessimistic about the future of the United States of America. But my citizenship is in heaven. My citizenship is with the kingdom of God. I don't want harm. I don't want bad things to happen to this country. But my citizenship extends far beyond and is far more important. 
And the immediate context for the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is proclaiming the good news about the kingdom. Secondly, the ending of the sermon provides a clue as to how you and I need to be responding or applying this teaching. There is no question as to how Jesus wants the people to respond to what He's been saying. Verse 24 of chapter 7, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Come on, you know it. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. The rains came down and the floods came up. And the house on the rock stood firm. Now what happened to the foolish man? who built his house on the sand. When the rains came down and the floods came up, whenever I sing this at camp, I try my best to end it by saying, and the house on the rock went flat. Make it flat sounding. Jesus clearly concludes his message by calling people to do to put into action what he taught. I am tired of hearing people proclaim that you can't do anything, you don't need to do anything. Let me tell you, you can't earn your salvation. But if you're not doing anything, if you're just resting on what's between your ears, Believing that I believe Jesus is the Christ, so that's all that's needed. You're the man who built his house on the sand. Because you are a hearer who is not doing. Unfortunately, many people try to soften the words of Jesus by saying that even though he says, do this, he didn't mean it literally. For example, some have said that Jesus' aim was to drive us to our knees, not make us obey, but to make us feel unworthy. I cannot accept that from a person, Jesus Christ, who was so filled with compassion and love. John 3.17 Not John 3.16 you know John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's my end of the commercial quick voice. <laughs> John 3.17 For Christ came not into the world to condemn the world but the world through Him might be saved. Jesus concludes the sermon by calling us to action. And those who who don't do what he says are condemned as foolish. And let me go back to Augustine. He said the entire sermon was the perfect standard of the Christian life, which Jesus follows with one haunting question. Will you follow me? Will you follow me? Thirdly, as chapter 8 begins... And remember that the original manuscripts didn't have chapter divisions and verse divisions. 
As chapter 8 begins, Jesus is recognized as a new kind of teacher. What struck the first hearers of the sermon, the crowds as well as his disciples, was Jesus' extraordinary ability to speak with authority. He didn't mince words. He didn't hesitate. He wasn't tentative. He wasn't apologetic. But on the other hand, he wasn't bam, I'll get it out. He wasn't bombastic uh, or flamboyant. Instead, with quiet and assuming assurance, he actually did lay down laws for the citizens of the God's kingdom. And that's what we're going to see in these three chapters. And the crowds were astonished even for the Greek word that's used there is a strong one, saying they were dumbfounded. And on what was Jesus' authority grounded? What clues does the sermon itself give of how he understood his identity and his mission? We don't have to go far to seek in order to find the answers to these questions. We're told specifically that the crowds were astonished because he taught them with authority not as their scribes and teachers. Do you know what their scribes and teachers did? They almost did a contemporary version of the thesis. You know, where you have to put the quotation marks and you have to have the footnotes. Then when they were talking, it was oh, Rabbi Akiva said this, and Rabbi Hillel said this, and Rabbi Shemai said this, and and it seems as though the people were saying, Well, okay, but what do you say? From Jesus. They didn't get all of that. They got what he said. He assumed the right to teach with absolute authority. <coughs> he was a Jew, but his message was not specifically Jewish. He was interpreting Moses' law, but in such a way to show that it was God's law for all people. And what he had to say was not culturally conditioned in the sense that it was limited, limited to a particular people, a particular time, or even a particular... <coughs> I'll get it out. Dean, would you go get me a water, please? Or even a particular place. So he spoke as one who knew what he was talking about. He even said at one point, we speak of what we know. We speak of what we know. He knew who would be great in God's kingdom and who would be least. He knew who was blessed in God's sight and who was not. Which way led to life and which way led to destruction. And with complete self-confidence, he declared who would inherit the kingdom of God and who would inherit the earth. Who would obtain mercy, see God, and be fit to be called God's children? So here's my challenge. It's only three chapters, five, six, and seven. I challenge you to read all three chapters each week to get the big context. Thank you. Read, read them. Get the big context. Because my challenge for all of us, myself included, is that we need to respond in terms of a new posture. 
placing ourselves at Jesus' feet as students. One of the biggest dangers that exists across the field of academics is when we are so familiar with something that we don't pick up on new things that are right there in front of our eyes. Put the familiarity aside. Reread the chapters all together in one city, five, six, and seven. Put yourself in a new posture and also put yourself in a new loyalty. Obedience. A king requires of his citizens obedience. Don't think for a minute that you don't have to obey this book and the teachings of this sermon because God is a God of love and Jesus is a forgiving person and He's already taken care of things. No, Jesus said, be hearers and doers. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for this time that we have had to commune, to give, to lift our voices. And Father, I pray that hopefully we have also opened our hearts and our ears to hear Your Word. Now as we sing a hymn of commitment, help us to think about the challenge to posture ourselves anew as students and as obedient citizens of your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.